glory. Well, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. And uh, I'd ask you to stand one more time with me as we read God's Word together. Um, I don't necessarily say this for humor, even though it's a... I don't know if it's funny to me. I'm, I'm ashamed a little bit, but... I went at the beginning of the week, and I actually went through the rest of the book of Matthew and put together a list of all the sermons I was going to do with the goal of being done by next August, okay? And part of that, and the start of that, was to go through verses 13 through 20 today, but as I started writing, I realized, oh, I'm going to have to go through only verse 16, and then I realized, oh, I'm going to only have to go through verse 16a today. So one's turned into three, but I hope it doesn't turn into three more years, even though that would be fine. But today we are reading verses 13 through 20, but I want our minds to be specifically focused on what we're going to preach through today. Verses 16a, you are the Christ, okay, and what that means in particular. This is the word of God sent to us for our good, for Jesus Christ's glory, we read. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied as the representative of the apostles here, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Please. Pray with me. Father, we, we ask you for your help, Lord. This is an incredibly dense and important passage, and I pray that you would help us today, all of us, God, to realize the importance of confessing Jesus properly, rightly. God, help us to, to see who he is in part today, small, a small part of what we can understand. I pray that we would understand it today and that we'd leave here rejoicing that we have a perfect mediator. Lord, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I, I think what I'm about to say is true, and I know if it's not absolutely true, it's mostly true. Throughout history, if you read through any human writings, one of the things that we are occupied with, a lot of writing, a lot of time, a lot of energy with, is what are the two distinguishing camps of mankind, right? I think going back even to Aristotle, I think it was Aristotle that said that there's the political man, that is the man of the city, or the one that's concerned with other people, and then there's the, this is his language in the Greek, I believe, the idiot, or that's focused on himself, idio, himself, okay? We continue throughout human history, and we see much the same thing. If we look at our own culture today, we can see we can be divided on our race, our economic status. We can find our primary identity in our authenticity, 
Whether I live out what I think I am in my own heart outwardly to an acceptable degree or not. We think that our most distinguishing quality might be our politics and who we vote for. And while some of these things might be absolutely important, I want us to see today that the most distinguishing quality about who a man is, the thing that divides mankind in two, is not any of these things, but it's who we confess Jesus Christ to be. Who we confess Jesus Christ to be, who we believe that the person, the historical person of Jesus Christ is in our hearts. And in this text, don't we see the prime, the core teaching here is that Peter confesses Jesus' true identity. And Jesus assures Peter of that truth and the importance of Peter's confession. Okay? Now, I think in our text today, the purpose of why this is written is very plain to us. That we must recognize the importance of confessing Christ rightly. That's key in our text. It should stand out to us in bold letters that it's extremely important that when we think of Christ, we have to think of who he is correctly. And secondly, we must make the confession that Peter makes. We must make Peter's confession. So, first today, recognize the importance of rightly confessing Christ. And I want us to see as primary importance in verses 13 to 14 that thinking Highly, even very highly of Jesus Christ is not enough. It's not enough. Now that might seem strange to say, and I hope that it's broadened and illuminated through what we're going to see, but I want us to see in the context of what we've been going through in chapters 15 and 16, that it's all wrapped up and the thread that goes through all of it is who people perceive Jesus Christ to be. Looking at chapter 16, we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, don't we? The religious leaders of Israel. And they perceive through their own willing hardness of heart that Jesus Christ is not the Christ. Rather, he's a demon-possessed man. He does his miracles in the power of Beelzebub. Right? He's a deceiver of the people. They perceive him in this way. And the disciples... In verses 5 through 12, they perceive of Jesus as he truly is, but dimly. And it's interesting, if you turn to the parallel in Mark 7, that the context has right in here the miracle of Christ healing the man of blindness, and he sees men as trees walking around, right? And then he further heals him, and he sees clearly. And I think that that's what's going on here. It's a picture of the disciples. They're seeing Christ more and more clearly but they still have a dim apprehension of who he really is. But here, in our text, we see the brightness come out. Even if Peter, and I don't think Peter fully understands what he says, but as we will see, I think that the New Testament builds upon this confession. Okay? And Jesus, as the good teacher that he is, and delighting to have this true confession, as important as it is, brought out of his disciples, he first makes the contrast of what they believe with what the people in general believe. These people, although they've listened to Christ, and like Ezekiel and John the Baptist, they heard his words, and he was like a beautiful instrument to them, they did not follow after Christ. They did not give their lives to Christ. And he first asked them, who do the people, 
What's the general opinion of the people that we have been ministering and preaching to? What's the general opinion of who I am? (coughs) Excuse me. And their answer, I think, is extremely revealing. Because, first of all, it's not the same confession that the Pharisees and the Sadducees made, is it? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, he is an evil man. He's deceiving the people. And they do not take this confession upon themselves. Rather, (coughs) excuse me again, what should be instructive to us is that they speak extremely highly of Jesus Christ. And I would propose to you today that they speak higher of Jesus Christ maybe than any other man that's ever been spoken of. Notice what they say about him. They say he's like one of the greatest prophets that we've ever seen in history. Who do people say the Son of Man is in verse 13? Verse 14, some say John the Baptist. As we think about John the Baptist and the the high level of respect that he had in the Jewish community, we realize that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't go out and persecute John the Baptist for one singular reason. Because all thought of John the Baptist as a prophet, right? From the mouth of Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 11, when he's preaching to the people, he says that John the Baptist is the greatest born among women. He's the greatest born among women. And these people aren't saying that they think, as Herod did, that Jesus is John raised from the dead, I believe. But he has the spirit of John the Baptist to some degree. He has the preaching ministry like that. Some said he's like, John the Baptist, that's amazing. Some said he's like Elijah. As we think in the Jewish mind, Elijah is almost a stand-in word for the prophetic ministry. He is the one that stood on Mount Carmel who challenged all of the prophets of Baal and in the name of the Lord showed them all to be false prophets. Elijah called the people of God back to God even though God wasn't pleased to bring the revival that Elijah thought he should have brought. Elijah was a great prophet of God. And then we have Jeremiah. Now, when we think of the major prophets, I think, for me at least, and I think probably for you, When brought up in the church in the New Testament, we tend to think of Isaiah maybe as the premier major prophet of the Old Testament. But that wasn't so in the Jewish mind at this time. Jeremiah and Elijah were the premier examples of what a prophet was to be. And with Jeremiah in particular, I think we can see a lot of parallels with Christ. He's called the the weeping prophet, isn't he? And we know that our Savior is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jeremiah was a man that, that confronted the people of his time with a message of doom. The prophets say, peace, peace, and there is no peace. And Jesus, much like that, is saying that if you don't repent, destruction is going to come. Destruction is going to come. But what we should realize is that they are exalting Christ. In his ministry, the general idea of the people is that Jesus is a great prophet of God, maybe the greatest that's ever come. Now, Leonard Ravenhill, I do not try to put him forward as somebody that you should listen to a lot, even though he had a lot of great sermons. I read his biography as a young Christian, and a a church at the time was having Leonard Ravenhill preach, and in their bulletins and their announcements, they said, uh, Leonard Ravenhill is coming to preach something like, uh, Jeremiah, Leonard Ravenhill's the new Jeremiah. 
something very close to that. And Leonard Ravenhill wept over that, that he said, I am not worthy to unloose the shoes of Jeremiah, nonetheless be compared to him. But the, the point is very clear, isn't it? If I was to say, or if the majority of the people in the church say, well, Brother Joey, he's like the prophet Jeremiah when he preaches. I know that Joey's heart would be like, you all have lost your mind. Okay. But in your eyes, what you're doing is you're saying that, that Joey is exalted to the highest degree that maybe we could even imagine or think of a human being. And that's what these people are doing. <coughs> he is the greatest of the prophets. Jesus Christ is the greatest of the prophets. And don't we see the same thing today? That whatever we think is the most important thing of, in the world, we tend to, even in an unbelieving mindset, attribute that to Jesus Christ. If we think religion is extremely important, we say, oh, Jesus, he was the, the greatest religious teacher that has ever lived. And we stop there, right? If we are into politics, well, Jesus, he was the greatest political activist that the world has ever seen. He's the greatest religious guru, maybe the greatest miracle worker. I remember driving with a, a roommate of mine who, who is probably and was then an atheist, and I remember talking to him right after my conversion, and he said something like, well, I'm sure Jesus did a lot of really good things, right? It's natural in the human mind when we think of Jesus, even in an unbelieving context like Mahatma Gandhi, say, I love Jesus. But they say, well, I, but I hate Christians and I won't submit to his law. I think he was a great man. But what I need us to see today is that that is in no means enough. That's not a Christian profession. To say that Jesus Christ is the greatest man that's ever lived, ever walked the world, and even to say he's the greatest man that will ever walk the world, that falls infinitely short of a Christian profession. Does not show somebody to be a Christian by making that confession. In fact, I would say to you today, to say that Jesus Christ is the greatest of the sons of men is only the best lie that the sons of Adam can muster to ease their own conscience about who he really is. They're willing to go that far, but no further. But I want us to see that we're not left in the dark about what the true confession should be of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? He approves of Peter's confession, doesn't he? What you've said is true. It's been revealed to you by the Father, Peter, and not of your own wisdom. These men who say that, well, he's, he's like these great prophets, they're thinking like sons of men in earthly wisdom. They couldn't deny he was a great preacher, but they would not confess who he truly was. And because Jesus approves Peter's confession, the obvious point that we must make is that we must make Peter's confession. <coughs> and we're going to see this in two weeks, right? First today, I want us to see that Jesus is the Christ. Next week, we're going to try to look at Jesus as the Son of the living God. Okay? And I'd appreciate your prayers for that. But for today, we must make Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Now... I'm aware that when we're reading the scripture, I think typically we don't think about the language that we're reading at all. We read Jesus Christ, and, and while we would chuckle and laugh to say that we think it's Jesus' last name, I think in practice we really treat it that way. 
But my goal today is that when we, when we talk about, I believe in Jesus Christ, when I say Jesus is the Christ, that that would be highlighted in our mind as a very significant, biblically rooted and robust statement. So what does Christ mean? What does Christ mean? We should realize that this is an extremely momentous occasion of the Apostle Peter. And I think when we read through it, don't you feel the text, right? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. The lights, the dimmer switch is cranked all the way up and we see, to some degree, the fullness of who Jesus is. And while we haven't defined what Christ is at this point, I think if we're thinking of New Testament texts in the Scripture, we should be convinced that this is an extremely weighty thing. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. And I'm going to read one verse, but again, I want us to see that confessing Jesus as the Christ, biblically speaking, has eternal weight and significance attached to it. 1 John chapter 2. Notice in verse 22. He asks a question. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the, the Father and the Son. He who de- no one denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So before we even define this term, I want us to have it clearly in our minds to, to say that Jesus is anything other, anything less than the Christ has eternal significance to it. The Bible calls them liars. And more than that, antichrist, against Christ, opposed to him and his kingdom. Okay? So, what does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Christ, or to confess Jesus as the Christ? Well, and I'm sure many of you have heard this term. It means the anointed one. Okay? In, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it could mean to rub, uh, but typically it's seen to mean the anointed one. That is, one who has been set apart usually by oil being poured upon the head to a particular office and ministry of God. And more than that, put a finer point on it, one that's been anointed in the Old and New Testament is one that has a mediatorial office given to them by God. And there are three of these mediatorial offices. They're offices that mediate between God and man in the Old Testament. And I think that you know them, prophet, priest, and king. Okay? The prophet is the one who mediates okay, God's word to his people. And as we look through the Old Testament and see the the physical picture of being anointed, there's only one clear text for that. And we've actually gone through that in our Wednesday night study. In 1 Kings 19.16, I'm just going to read it. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Ebal-Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your So if one of the offices that is anointed in the Old Testament, set apart to mediate God's word to his people, is the office of prophet. Secondly, in the Old Covenant, the priest was one who mediated sacrifices between God and sinful man. 
And we read throughout Leviticus, especially chapters 8 through 9, that the Levitical priests were to be anointed with oil set apart by the living God. And by the way, this anointing with oil, it wasn't just to make people greasy or shiny, right? It had spiritual significance attached to it. God is placing upon them the image of the Holy Spirit empowering them to fulfill this office in a, in a way that is actually effectual for the people. Okay? And the third is king. We see Saul and David and many of the kings of the Old Testament anointed with oil by the prophet to mediate what? God's justice and rule over the people of God. So when we think of the Christ, we can go to all these texts and see that they have been anointed using this word that is translated often as Christ or Messiah. They've been anointed into these mediatorial offices. And these particular offices were God's goodness to Israel in the Old Testament, weren't they? Especially with a good king, David. He ruled and gave justice. Solomon, in the earlier part of his life, ruled and gave justice in a good way. The priests, they showed forth Christ coming in the new covenant by these sacrifices that were instituted in the old. The prophet, he mediated God's word and brought the people to repentance. But the Old Testament itself envisioned a time when these three particular offices were going to be bound up in the one person of the coming Messiah. He will be the anointed one. He will be the anointed one. To confess Jesus as the Christ, we are confessing that we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he occupies three perfect offices for sinners. What does it mean to confess Jesus as the Christ? It means that we confess him as God's anointed prophet. God's anointed prophet. Now, to understand this completely, we have to understand that the office of prophet, it, it says something about our need as people. If we need a prophet, it means that we are ignorant of God's will. Ignorant of what God wants from us. And the Bible tells us that all of our ignorance is rooted in sin. That we are willfully rebellious against the living God. So rebellious, in fact, we don't even recognize it. And we need somebody to come and say, thus says the Lord to us. We need that. We have ignorance of God's will. And because of this, because of our exceeding weakness to see what God needs us to know, we need somebody to mediate God's word to us. We need somebody to tell us what God says because I'm not able to discern what he says on my own. Not able. Now, we see that God promised an end times fulfillment in the Christ that he would be a prophet in the Old Testament. Please turn with me to Deuteronomy. We're going to turn to several texts. I just want you to see these extremely important biblical passages Forgive me. <clears throat> I don't know if I'm going to be able to stop, though. Deuteronomy, chapter 18, 18. It's a good mnemonic device. 18, 18. We have the prophecy of Moses. It says, 
Yeah, I'll, I'll just keep it with this. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever shall not listen to my words, he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. Now, we have this promise that there's going to be a prophet that comes like Moses. That he's going to, to speak in some similitude, give out the law. And that whoever doesn't listen, God's going to require it of him. And it's in Acts chapter 3 that we see the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 3. And it's amazing. It's from the Apostle Peter's mouth that whether he understood Jesus Christ to be this prophet while he made this confession or not, I don't know. We see that he clearly understood it by the time Acts chapter 3 rolls around. I'll start in verse 19. Looking at verse 22 in particular, Peter preaching says, Repent therefore... And turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Jesus Christ is this prophet prophesied of. He is, when we confess Jesus to be Christ, he is this prophet. And we also see elements of this in Isaiah 61. I won't have you turn there, but... The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, right? This preaching ministry of Jesus Christ, this prophetic ministry, anointed by the Spirit of God to do it. And don't we see in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus Christ sitting in the synagogue and opening up that scroll, he says, in your hearing, this is fulfilled today. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophet that we are to have. And brothers and sisters, he is the same today. He wasn't just a prophet, and now he ceased to be one now that he's in heaven. He continues to reveal his word to his people. John 1.18 has such a wonderful text. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. That's Jesus. He has made him known. Right? In the Greek, we've gone through this. He has exegeted the Father. This is what Jesus Christ does, and he does it today for us. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul, he's, he's preaching, he says that Jesus is the one that's spreading the gospel among the Gentiles, even as Paul is preaching. And in Ephesians 2.17, I was kind of blown away by this text this week, to be honest with you. I never read it in this context. As he's writing to this Gentile church, listen to what he says. He says, and he, that is Jesus, talking to these people who never saw Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. You know, every time that you hear the Bible preached as the Bible is meant to be preached in its proper context, when you hear true doctrine and true words, we can say with the Bible's authority that we're hearing Jesus preach to us. He's mediating his word to his people. He is our perfect prophet because you need to hear God's word because your sinful mind cannot know what God requires or who God is on his own. He sent a perfect prophet. 
to us. We confess that Jesus is the anointed prophet who has shown us who God is and how to live in a manner pleasing to him. That's what we confess in part when we say Jesus is the Christ. But second, to confess Jesus as the Christ is to confess him as the anointed priest of God. Now, if the prophet mediates God's word to his people, what does the priest mediate? Well, I think the the word mediator even comes to fuller strength as we consider him as a priest. Now, I haven't followed this closely, so if I speak wrongly, I'm merely trying to use an illustration here, okay? But I know that there was this gun bill that went through Congress, and I'm not commenting right or wrong on it at the moment. But we had two parties, Democratic and Republican parties, and there had to be a lot of mediation going on because we had two disagreement green sides. They had to be brought to something that would be an agreement, right? And that's usually how mediation works in the corporate world or in anything else. But in this case, the situation is far more severe because both parties were immovable. God is immovable in his requirement for absolute holiness and righteousness from his people. He cannot let any sin into heaven. He cannot put his hands over his eyes and just let people pass in. God is immovable in that. And because of that, God is the enemy of sinful man to speak in one side of it. And man is entrenched in his sin, unwilling to repent, unwilling to go to God. And even if he could, there's no way he could fulfill the righteousness that God requires. No way that he could take care of the past debt that he owes. And no way to pay forward the interest and punishment that he's accrued because of his sin. The priest that we need is a perfect priest that will mediate between both parties. And we'll look at this more next week as he's the son of the living God. But he needed to be God and man to properly mediate between these two parties. He had to represent the interests of both sides just like any mediator would. Here we see clearly, I think, that we have need of a priest that will mediate our sins to God. Now, again, we're following the same pattern. We have this promised in the Old Testament. And we have the, the priesthood promised in many occasions. Joey read, I think, one of the most beautiful verses in the Old Testament talking about the combination of a priest and king together in the coming age. And I don't know if you noticed it, but his name was Joshua, right? This is the, the same exact Hebrew word that our Savior is called, Yeshua, right? So you had in the Old Testament this picture of Yeshua sitting on the throne as a king and a priest, but I think maybe one of the clearest texts that we have is Psalm 110 and verse 4. This psalm is the most quoted scripture of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And in verse 4, it says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are, and he's talking about the Messiah to come. You are a priest forever according or after the order of Melchizedek. This exact verse is quoted no more or no less, I should say, than four places in the book of Hebrews that it's referring to the priestly office of Jesus Christ in chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 20, chapter 7, verse 17, and verse 21. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's, God's desire for us to have a priest that would mediate between two sinful 
parties. And as our high priest, Jesus Christ took away our alienation from God. In an almost unfathomable way, he came and took all of the curses of the old covenant upon himself and fulfilled all of the blessings of the new. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll turn to two passages in Hebrews. Um, I viewed that as a minimum as we were going through it. Two passages in Hebrews, and I'm glad Brother Matt read through some of chapter 7, but we're going to read through that again. Hebrews chapter 10 and 11 through 12. Notice that the Jesus has taken away our alienation. And every priest that is in the old covenant, the picture of Christ of those priests, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He offered a single sacrifice for sin. And we should imply from that, he offered it. He is the priest and he is the sacrifice here But Jesus Christ, as the fulfillment, the anointed, the Christ, he is the priest that took away our alienation to God. In in verse 7, chapter 7 rather. Now if we consider the priests of the old covenant, the priests always had two works. They offered sacrifices, but they also brought that blood of the sacrifice into the inner temple, didn't they? And they had the names of the sons of Israel written on their chest and on their shoulder plates. And they would intercede and spread that blood. They would pray. The priest always has two jobs, to sacrifice and to pray. And Jesus Christ has this same ministry. In verse 23, the former priests, again, comparing with the old covenant, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever notice verse 25 consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them his sacrifice was effective but Jesus Christ he he goes before the father so to speak with his blood and pleads with the father that all of the blessings that he purchased on the cross would be applied to all the elect in space and time. And it's effective. He saves us to the uttermost. You know, there's nothing that we, we have in this equation. He is the one that's able to save us to the uttermost. His prayers are that effective before our Father. This should cause us to rejoice, brothers and sisters. We have a prophet that reveals to us our sins and the grace of God and who God truly is, even though our minds warp and bend and twist all of that, and we have a priest in heaven who pleads his own perfect blood. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. When we confess that, we confess that Jesus is the anointed priest who made peace between God and man. He brought these two irreconcilable parties together like no one ever could. Thirdly, To confess Jesus as the Christ is to confess him as the anointed king. Again, we ask the question, what need do I have of an anointed king? And as an American, as a conservative American, I have no need of any king. I will self-govern myself, speaking as a madman, okay? 
But spiritually, we are all, even after we've been born again, okay, we have, we have sin existing in us. And we're inclined to lawlessness. We're inclined after our own ways. We're prone to wander, aren't we? Lord, I feel it. I don't just know it. I feel that I'm prone to wander in my very soul on Monday morning. God, how can it be that I am so far in my mind away from you? We're prone to lawlessness. And so we need a God, a king, to rule over us. More than that, we're persecuted by the world and the flesh and the devil that as we wait for Christ to come, we don't live in the new heavens and the new earth that's perfect. Rather, we live in a place where there's enemies on all sides. And just like the kings of the Old Testament, we need protection. We need protection. We have need of a king who will subdue our sinfulness. We need need of a king who will rule us by his word and spirit and protect us and restrain all of our enemies. That no weapon forged against us will prosper. Now, again, promised in the Old Testament, isn't it? And there are so many places we can go. We've already read Psalm 2. But in 2 Samuel 7, (coughs) verses 12 through 13, and again, I'd like you to see this with your eyes if, if possible. 2 Samuel 7. These are key texts. Key texts in the Old Covenant that prophesy about Christ. Him being anointed, set apart to be our great King. Notice in verse 12. When your days, talking to David, God talking to David directly. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. And it's hard to pick a fulfillment verse, but I'm going to, I did, I did that. Uh, Luke 1. This is, this is Mary's prayer. I'm sorry, this is the angel speaking to Mary. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why will his name be called Jesus? Because he will save his people from his sins. Verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And we even read over it in Sunday school, didn't we? At the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, what does he tell his disciples? First thing, all authority has been given to me on heaven and in earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And what a comfort this is to us, isn't it? What a comfort to know that I have a good king in heaven that is not going to allow the rebellion of my heart while I cling to Jesus Christ overtake me. That I have a God that cares more about my soul, a king that cares more about my soul than I care about my soul. What a comfort it is when I see the culture and the enemies of the world, my own flesh and even the devil, desiring to, to tear apart the church of Jesus Christ. That I have a king that's ruling over all things, so much so as the Heidelberg Catechism says, that all things must work for my salvation. It's a great comfort. 
It's a great comfort. We confess that we have a king that graciously rules over his people through his word and spirit and rules the entire universe so that salvation will certainly come to his elect people. Now, this is a great confession, brothers and sisters. I want you to see it. I want us to feel the weight of that when we hear Peter say, Jesus is the Christ. That's a loaded biblical term. That throughout the New Testament is going to spread and bear fruit. And the question that we have is, is this your confession? Do you confess this? Every part of this. If you don't confess that Jesus is the Christ, and in your mind, you don't have in your mind prophet, priest, and king, that's okay. Because we all learn things at different rates. I remember it wasn't until we came to this church, and I think the first week we were at this church, Pastor Kevin was going through the Westminster Confession of Faith and said, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And I thought, how is it possible that I've been a Christian for seven years and I've never even heard this before? How is that possible? It's okay if you've never heard this before. My question is, as you've heard the biblical truth, I hope, expounded to you that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, can you confess that with a sincere heart? Can you confess that he's your prophet because you see your need? I need somebody to teach me God's ways. I don't know them. I have to cling to his word to tell me what's right and wrong. I refuse to trust my own mind because I am by nature a fool and inclined to wander. Do you, do you refuse to believe portions of Scripture? That's the simplest way we could put it. Do you trust Him alone as your priest? Do you think that, that you have something to offer? That you can add to the righteousness of Christ or that your sin can somehow take away from the righteousness of Christ that no longer is His work effective for you? Do you confess that he's a perfect mediator? That it is his sacrifice and his prayers alone that will save me to the uttermost? Now, is that going to have an effect on our heart? Of course it is. Of course it is. But we cling to and trust in him alone for that. Do you, do you trust him as your king? Do you allow him to rule over you by, your, by his word and spirit rather than you trying to rule over what you think is right and wrong in your own life? Do you confess these things? If you don't confess them, the door's open today. Confess that Jesus is the Christ. He's open. This perfect mediator given between God and man, his arms are open to any, and today is the day of salvation. Oh, but believer, if you can hear these things and rejoice in your heart that these things I confess, even if I didn't understand them fully, I, I rejoice in the fact that I have a perfect mediator between God and man. You have much to rejoice about. Today, you can find great comfort that you have a perfect mediator that cannot, will not ever fail you. And you should put all your trust in him. And every time you read your Bible, I hope that just a little part even in the back of your mind, when you read Jesus Christ, oh, he's a perfect mediator, prophet, priest, and king. It comes to our mind. And even more than that, I'm I'm not going to go too far into this, that we're called Christians in part, okay, in part, Because we are in Christ, and we partake of Christ's anointing, okay? What do I mean by that? That in part, as Christians and partaking in Christ's offices, that that we can preach the gospel to other people, right? 
that we preach the gospel to ourselves, right? In part, we are priests offering up prayers of the saints, okay, and laying down our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And in part, and I don't mean like Christ in any way, but in part, we take a part in his ministry of king even, his anointing to rule over sin. We have dominion over sin in the Christian life. We are no longer slaves to it. The good news of Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, it's not just doctrinal in an ethereal, academic kind of way, but when we confess it, we realize we partake of the benefits of everything that Jesus Christ is now and in eternity. Um, As we turn our eyes to the Lord's Supper and as Pastor Joey comes up to serve it to us, um, I think that we have powerfully represented to us if we think about the supper, the ministry of Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. We see him as our prophet because when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim, don't we? We are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. We see his work as a priest because his body was broken for us, for me. His blood was shed for you and me. We see his work as a king. He's going to come again one day and receive us as his own. Perfectly and completely. Pastor Joe.